You're listening to Market Champions, a podcast on navigating the financial markets. Here's your host, Shabas Prakash. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Market Champions. Today we've got one of the big guns in the investment industry, an investment legend. We've got Raul Pal, co-founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for asking me. So could you give the audience a little bit about your background, you know, uh, your, your journey to becoming an investment yeah. manager and how you got into this space? Yeah, my background, I'm half Indian, half Dutch. My father was from India. My mother was from Holland. Uh, I grew up in England um, and then moved around a bit. I lived in India for a bit, lived in, in Spain. But really, I, when I was at university, it was the late 80s. And that was the period where you saw pictures of all these guys driving Porsches, wearing pinstripe suits and it, drinking champagne. And I'm like, this looks amazing. Um, and so uh, I was at university, the stock market crash happened and all of that stuff. And I came out of university and um, a friend of my father's, my father was in marketing and a friend of my father said to me, well, what do you want to do when you graduate? I said, I, you know, I'd love to get into finance, but I'm not sure. Um, I've also quite like marketing, you know, and he said, Oh, that's great. He goes, let me give you a bit of advice. He said, you can go and work for a company like Mars and you can help market Mars bars and they'll give you free Mars bars. Or you can go and work for a bank and they'll give you free money. And I was like, <laughs> that was the best piece of advice I was ever given. Problem <laughs> is, I graduated right in the middle of a recession. There were no banking jobs. And I went to a shitty university with not a great degree. And so to get in was going to be difficult. So I managed to get into a graduate training program for a company called Dow Jones Tellerate, which is like Bloomberg or Thomson Reuters. Um, eventually got bought by Thomson Reuters. But it was one of the, it was the big player at the time, much bigger than Bloomberg. And so I started a graduate training program there, started on a product that, um, uh, a technical analysis product. So I didn't know anything, but I started to learn charts. And I suddenly realized how visual I was. So I started to use charts i started to learn about charts and then i started training people about charting and then eventually i became a salesman etc but charts became my entry into the world of finance i could see everything that had happened where the stock market had been where a currency had been what was moving it you know they tell a story they tell a story of human behavior of investment patterns and everything so that was my eye opener i then managed to get a job talk my way into a job in equity derivatives at a very prestigious um, brokerage firm called James Capel, which was part of Hong Kong Shanghai Bank at the time. And um, I got on the equity derivative desk um, doing international stock index derivatives. And six months later, my boss resigned and went to JP Morgan. And I was made head of the desk, not really knowing what I was doing, but I was a pretty good salesman. And, um, and so that grew over one and then I moved the whole team to NatWest, another big UK bank. And then eventually I got poached by the partner running equity derivatives at Goldman saying, I've now at this point suddenly become the hedge fund guy. So hedge funds were a growing business. My boss at NatWest, who had just come from Morgan Stanley, said to me, hey, Raoul, what, what, what do you want to do now? 
because we're restructuring 120 people from Morgan Stanley joined at the same time that I joined and brought our team across uh, from James Capel. He said, well, what do you want to do? And I'm like, well, you know, I was running that whole business before. He said, look, we're going to kind of restructure how we do this. I said, listen, what I actually want to do is hedge funds. He said, fine. Who do you want to know? And I gave him a list of the 10 largest hedge funds in the world. He said, fine, come out to New York next week. I'll introduce you all to them. Wow. <laughs> the next week I'm in the office with Paul Tudor Jones, chatting to him, then to see Lewis Bacon at Moore Capital, then to see Soros. And you know, it was ludicrous. And my, my career then took off because I became the guy in Europe for all the world's most famous hedge fund managers because I'd started to understand the language of macro and they all start with a chart. So I'd, I used charts, I spoke the same language. I mean, I remember Paul, when I was with him for the first time, he's like, what do you think of the Nikkei? And I'd start to talk about the chart and I could see he lights up. He's like, okay, this guy speaks my language. So I spent a lot of time, I, I then went to Goldman where they, they poached me to go and build a hedge fund business because they didn't have one. Most prestigious firm in the world, they didn't have a hedge fund sales business mm. in, in equities. So I uh, built that business and that was like the easiest calling card in the world. You know, it's, it's Raoul from Goldman, you get into any hedge fund in the world. And so I built a huge business there, really luckily, and had a lot of fun, immensely stressful. Um, I was there over the Asian crisis, stuff like that, going into the, uh, into the financial bubble of uh, 2000, and then quit because I wanted to trade the coming recession. And I went to the largest hedge fund firm in Europe, who is one of my clients called GLG Partners, where I, I started running a macro book and then ended up starting and founding and co-managing the global macro hedge fund for them. And then eventually opted out of the rat race, kind of semi-retired at 36, moved to the Mediterranean coast of Spain and started writing. I've now been in the hedge fund industry longer at that point than most other people and had seen how all the greatest investors had traded, run my own hedge fund. So I had a lot of experience to share with people. So I started writing macroeconomic and investment strategy, the global macro investor uh, for the world's largest hedge funds, family offices, sovereign wealth funds, bank trading operations, all that kind of stuff. And then eventually that led me on the path of starting Real Vision. So what were like the biggest lessons that you learned from Bacon, uh, from talking to people like Bacon, Paul Tudor Jones and George Soros? There is no one answer. <laughs> so they're all different, right? Right. So Paul is a short-term trader, mm -hmm. really. So he can tell you one thing, it'll be the opposite by the afternoon. He's a very disciplined risk manager, but occasionally swings the bat massively when it's working. Lewis was incredibly aggressive trader and was, had incredible bandwidth to see, to join the dots in the future. That's what he was really good at. Um, he could see not the first step, not the second step, the third step and push every step on way. Stan Druckenmiller was phenomenal at constructing the whole macro narrative, but still managing to run a portfolio that even though he took some massive bets, um, you know, he never had a down year, really. He had, at Soros he did, but not in Duquesne, his other fund. Um, but I, I could see how to construct a macro view from him. Lewis was like that as well. Lewis was astonishingly good trader. Um, so different people had different things. Um, George Soros was less active because Stan was really running the money and another guy called Nick Roditi who was less well known but was probably the most aggressive trader of all um, and the most unusual and unique um, 
George would be uh, more periodic and thematic. So different people, but what tied them all together, interestingly enough, is they all started with a chart. Not one of those guys could trade if you took a chart away from them, which is fascinating, right? So I wanted to start off with your thoughts on the COVID crisis. So could you summarize the unfolding thesis that you uh, posted in March on your Global Macro Investor for those who might not be familiar with it? Yes. So. Um, Recessions and economic crisis always, always, almost always come the same way. They start with the initial realization, which is the liquidation phase, where everyone's like, oh, I need to change my risk adjust, my, my risks. That was what we got into March. Then after that, you get what's known as the hope phase. That's it's not going to be so bad. We'll be okay. But because economies move slowly, everybody extrapolates it's going to be okay with it takes a while for the data to unfold. Right. The real damage to be seen. Then it goes into a final phase, which is usually the, the major part of the bear market, uh, whether that's economically or whether the, the, the stock markets and stuff follow through. In this case, I looked at that and realized that the issue here is we were going into the largest economic event of any of our lifetimes since the Great Depression with the most amount of debt in all recorded history. And a crisis like this, which is a pandemic where economies are held back by behavioral patterns of people and governments, they basically stop the ability, but they, they, to, they, they restrict economic freedoms in order to control the virus. And that's a payoff trade-off that, you know, I don't really want to argue about, but that's what it is. And, you know, your parents, don't leave the house and they spend less because they're worried about getting a virus. You know, all of this stuff goes on. And what that means in economic terms is the revenues of the economy fall. So sure, some tech companies, et cetera, do well, but basically bread and butter businesses lose revenue. Right. And if that goes on for a long period of time, most recessions go on for two years. Most, you know, something like a pandemic is at least a year before it goes, then what happens is people become insolvent because they've got too much debt and not enough revenue. So I labeled the last part of this crisis, the insolvency phase. And that's what I think is beginning to slowly play out. So one thing that you've mentioned several times is that the bond market is the truth. So why do you say that the bond market is the truth? Yes, I say it because it is the most macro of all instruments. I'm a macro guy. I trade right. macro, right? So the truth is the economic truth. What is actually going on? The bond market, bonds are basically priced GDP, GDP growth plus inflation. That's basically it. They're rough. So really, they just go up and down with the economy. Right. And the future expectation of the economy. So... They, for example, have been flat in yields for a long time. People say it's the central bank, but the central bank hasn't been buying a lot recently. <coughs> it's the fact that they're saying the economy is not recovering fully. Mm -hmm. So they are the truth. Equities and foreign exchange and commodities all have elements of economic cyclicality, but then they're driven by other factors too. Right. Earnings, corporate earnings, 
future earnings expectation, future economic growth expectation, future inflationary expectations, future margin, all of these things. And they tend to be more behaviorally driven because they, there's no narrative in bond markets for individual investors, but there's a narrative in Tesla and there's a narrative in Amazon that people latch hold of the storytelling. Uh, commodities tend to have supply and demand as drivers plus the business cycle. So they can be skewed by external factors. Um, and currencies are the most complicated of all. Very simple, because we all understand what a currency is, bloody difficult to forecast, <laughs> because they're what's known as Bayesian distributions, which means that they have multi-factor variables that keep moving around. So one minute it's interest rate differentials, next minute it's mergers and acquisition flows, next minute it's portfolio right. investments, next minute it's inflation expectations, and it keeps morphing all the time. So have you read this book by Stephen Malaby called, uh, I think it was, the, it's the one on hedge funds. I forgot the name. So actually he's written a story in that where, um, so what Greenspan wanted to do was he wanted to cut interest rates and he expected this to um, stave off inflation expectations. So therefore the long end of the yield curve would actually go down. But what happened was due to people like Michael Steinhardt, they had these large leverage bets on the long end of the curve, what they all did was they all sold off the long end of the curve and it actually went up instead of going down. So do you think stuff like this still has an impact on the bond market? No, because the structure of the bond market has changed. The speculative flows were a much larger part of the bond market years ago. Mm -hmm. Now the real bond market trade is, is two people, banks, uh, three people, banks, insurance companies, and pension funds. As this baby boom population gets older and older and older, their waiting to bonds goes up. So speculators have a, lot, a smaller part of it. Yes, they can drive it around a bit, um, but generally speaking, it's now driven by other participants. Got it. So some of the trades you've been taking during this time was your, you've mentioned that you're long dollars and you're short the banks and AT&T. So could you discuss the thesis behind these trades? the same trade so it's the all trade, the insolvency phase it's all insolvency so what is where is the biggest debt issue the biggest debt issue is foreign borrowers of dollars right so the euro so dollar market. they default on those dollars those dollars get wiped out so it means there's a shortage of dollars so the dollar goes up mm -hmm. who lends all the money in the economy it's the banks so any insolvency they're either going to lend less and their margins fall or they're going to hit with, be hit with insolvencies by all these restaurants and cinema chains and whatever going bust. So they have to deal with that. So that is why banks, AT&T is the world's most indebted company. Now, I don't think, you know, any of that, I don't think the banks go bust in the US and I don't think AT&T does, but that doesn't matter. What we're playing is what is the economic impact on these particular instruments, assets over time. And it means that they will probably fall in price. Got it. So one other thing that you've been a big bull on is Bitcoin. And, you know, you've said that it's going to go to 1 million within five years. So could you give us an update on that? <laughs> yeah, that's a big topic. Um, basically, there are two macro instruments that are debts of nobody. And that is Bitcoin and gold. 
And just at the simplest level, you can think of Bitcoin as digital gold. It's, the, it's right. a fantastic reserve asset, whether it's for us as individuals or as we've seen, corporate treasurers can now get involved and more and more people have become understanding the value of this asset, which supply can never increase. In a world of too much supply of debt or money, this right. doesn't happen to Bitcoin. Right. So it's basically a demand-driven instrument only, which is fascinating. We don't have many of those. So in a world where there is excess printing of money and excess issuance of debt, the relative value of Bitcoin rises over time. It also happens to be a call option on the future technology of the financial system because out of blockchain comes a lot of magic. And so what you're getting is a call option on the future that has a real intrinsic value. People say, well, it's not backed by anything. Well, gold's not backed by anything either. It's backed by right. trust. Right. And Bitcoin's construct is that where it's trusted because it's distributed. So nobody can control it. It's a really fascinating thing and is a major breakthrough for uh, global finance. So I wanted to move to more of your investment framework. So could you describe your investment framework or investment philosophy? Um, the investment framework starts with a secular thesis. Where are certain, what, what are the big narratives driving certain assets? So we've had demographics being the biggest of our lifetimes. And that's the, the baby boom generation and their working and investment lives, what they've done. That's what drove the equity market bubble. That's what drove um, a whole bunch of things, drove bond yields down, drove the increase in debt. All of this came out of demographics. The flip side of demographics is countries like India, where demographics are the opposite. It's young and low debt and high savings. So that drives another narrative. Um, the debt cycle itself is a narrative. Um, so you look at these big picture narratives and the really secular ones, and then within that you'll have the secular cycle of commodities, the secular cycle of currencies that generally correlated. So things tend to move in secular cycles, kind of 10, 15, 20 year cycles. Mm -hmm. Within it is the business cycle. The business cycle is you can show what's amazing is most economists in the world never forecast recessions. Why? Because they use a linear model. Right. But anybody, you can show it to an 11 year old and show them the chart of GDP and say, is this, does this, is this linear or is this cyclical? They'll go, well, it goes up and down. It looks like a right. sine wave. Oh, it's a cycle. Of course it's a cycle. Right. Anybody who says otherwise is an idiot. So it's a business cycle. So study the business cycle. When you dig into the business cycle, you find out that it actually is the largest driver of asset movements. So when you look at the S&P year on year, bond yields year on year, copper year on year, emerging markets year on year, the dollar, they're all basically driven by the business cycle. So that gives you a structural framework to understand where you are. So now you've got all of this. Where's all this? So you start looking where you are in the business cycle. You can use something like the ISN gives you a decent idea or the ECRI or something like that. But then when you're looking for the investment ideas, start with a chart. Why is that doing that? Why is the Turkish lira at all-time weaknesses today? What does that mean? What's going on? Could that affect something else? So then you start weaving all of these narratives together and looking for 
when everything comes together is when it becomes super interesting. Usually in macro, the fastest accumulation of returns is in the downside of the cycle because the upside of the cycle tends to take five to 10 years. The downside tends to take 18 months to two years. But the movement in that period of time is massive. So concentrated returns over a short period of time, which is why most macro guys um, tend to do better over the down cycle. Of course, there's other great up cycle plays that can play out over time. Yeah, India, the Middle East, there's a bunch of these places that can be very interesting over time. So I, I, I look at the big secular narratives. What is really driving the global economy? Globalization being another one, technology being another one. Um, then you look at what are the impacts, deflation, driving of asset prices, debt bubbles, all of these things. Then you look at secular cycles of assets. Where are we in the real estate cycle? Where are we in the commodity cycle? Where are we in this? And then where are we are in the business cycle? And that gives you, out of that, all the opportunities. And then the charts are your way of seeing it all. So do you use charts particularly like for timing or do you use it uh, for, uh, for like, know sort of finding the correlation between different assets like how do you how do you use charts like how do you personally use charts i will often just go through charts and just look at what, what is the monthly chart saying mm -hmm. is this odds that i could get out of that does it look like something's going to move one way or the other am i missing something is that consistent with what another asset's telling me you know if if the Canadian dollars going up and commodity prices are going down. Why are they doing the opposite things? Are they not correlated? Is something I don't know about the story? What is happening? So they give you the texture of everything that's going on. I then look at the correlations between different assets. I look at the correlations with the business cycle, and then I use them for market timing. So I use them for everything. So one thing that you've mentioned uh, for tracking the business cycle is the ISM PMI. You've written about it in a book called The Global Macro Edge, and there's a video on the Real Vision channel on YouTube as well. So what else do you watch on the business cycle other than the ISM PMI? I've got like 3,000 charts. <laughs> but basically, it's all variations of the same thing. Is something leading right now in this cycle? Is something lagging right now in this cycle? Is somebody something indicating where this ISM may go or... The ECRI, which is a weekly indicator that's useful, or the market PMI surveys, or whatever it is, they're basically all proxies for GDP. All I'm trying to figure out is where the economy is going, right? And what's driving it at this point. Um, so, you know, some points into inventories, and other points it's the real estate cycle, and the other point. So it always changes. So I'm always looking for what those things are. What's moving it? What are the knock-on effects? What's this going to do to inflation? What's this going to do to bond yield? What's it going to do to equities? What's it going to do to commodities, et cetera? Could you talk a little bit about your European bank nationalization thesis and what the impact would be on the European markets and the whole European economy? It's the same thesis as the dollar, the same thesis as the US but insolvency, right? Right. The problem is, is the Europeans never recovered from the last crisis. And I've been pointing this out. The ECB basically backstopped the banks mm -hmm. in terms of debt and took all of the crap off their balance sheets and, and not allowing them to go bust. But the equity prices look like they're all going to zero. So how do you have all the bondholders 
still being made whole by the ECB and the equity going to zero, it means they're going to transfer the ownership probably of the banks onto the, uh, onto the central banks. And what that means is then they can bring lending back and they could change it. It's actually advantageous in the end. doesn't mean the government run good banks, but I'm not entirely sure that they'll run a bank because we've seen the rise of the central bank uh, uh, digital currency. Right. And that's basically a way for central banks to act as the banking system without a banking system. Mm -hmm. So then it removes all the risk of leverage in the banking system. You allow a DeFi layer, not DeFi, a um, fintech layer on top for all the financial services that we need. But basically, the direct supply of money in and out of the central bank into the hands of individuals and businesses is now can be run by the central bank. So I, I think that's coming. Um, and I don't think it's the catastrophe. Getting there might get pretty bad. <laughs> um, and I'm not sure it's particularly good for the euro. Right. Um, Wouldn't this be like repeating the mistakes of the depression? Because in, during the depression, the Federal Reserve nationalized a lot of banks. And then, you know, eventually a lot of people blamed that for the depression. And, you know, they contrast the depression with 2008 because... While the Fed did bail out the banks, they did not nationalize any of them. Well, so. the, UK, the UK did, and so did Europe. So, um, you know, the Germans nationalized some of theirs, uh, the UK did. So it, it, it happened. I think that the difference here is this central bank digital currency. We might be rebuilding the entire financial architecture from scratch. I think it's very interesting. What does it mean? Is it good? Is it bad? I don't know, but it's going to complete, be a complete overhaul of the study of economics and the monetary system and the system of government itself. Because I can give you a different interest rate to me. I could say, well, you need a positive interest rate because I want to encourage you to save because you're young and I've got more savings, so I'm going to put, give you a negative 5% interest rate. Now, that the power of that versus putting money into the banking system are hoping they lend it then they have to figure out what they can risk what they can't risk they've got to deal with regulation all of that it goes away so it changes economics into behavioral economics where you have incentive systems that you can craft right um you know i can award you something and not me something i can take things away i can tax us directly at source i can this is a massive change like people huge, aren't getting their heads yeah. around how big this is, but basically we can throw away everything we've ever learned <laughs> because we know that the monetary system is coming to the end. We know the central banks know it, but that's why this push for digital currency because it changes everything. Wouldn't you suggest that the, uh, the central banks would try and print and then sort of, you know, bandage away the crisis again, because that's what I believe Luke Groman has talked about. Um, you know, they, uh, the Fed will have to print the mostest and the fastest because when all the dollars come due, you know, someone has to supply them. It's going to be the Federal Reserve. Uh, problem is, is the Federal Reserve can't supply a South Korean corporate. The problem is, is there's two sets of banks in the way and another central bank. So it's actually not that simple. So I don't believe in Luke's arguments. I'm, um, but... I don't think it solves the problems, this central bank digital currency, right. because it's still a fiat currency. Right. But don't forget, in that world, Bitcoin is another digital 
on-ramp and off-ramp that works seamlessly in a digital currency world. I mean, that's, uh, you know, it gives us the chance to vote with our wallets by going to our digital wallet and shifting it to Bitcoin. So yeah. I think it's pretty positive for us to be able to cite that central banks are always going to be central banks. They're always going to screw this up. Eventually, maybe, maybe it moves to Bitcoin as, a, as the reserve act. Who knows? The point being is the experiment's not over yet. We've got a much bigger experiment to come. Um, but we've got Bitcoin and we've got gold. So, well, one of the things that I wanted to touch on was the retirement crisis that you've talked about. So could you give us a summary of this retirement crisis? And could you talk about how this ties in with COVID-19 and the insolvency crisis? Yes, it's all part of the same big picture. This is the secular narrative. So the secular narrative is that the baby boomers have been the predominant driver of asset class, uh, asset prices. The problem is, is they never saved enough. They borrowed too much money, didn't save enough. So when it's come to their pensions and the average baby boomer is like 65 now, 66, they're, they're hitting retirement age en masse, the largest amount of people ever to retire in world history. And they retired first in Japan, then in Europe, then in the US. And what happens is if you retire with, with assets, you draw down those assets over time until you die. That's what a pension is. Problem is in the US particularly, they take too much risk because they have a lot more equity allocation than they should do because they, their pensions underperformed. So as opposed to taking the loss and understanding you're going to have a lower lifestyle expectation in the future when you retire, they all wanted to gamble more. So the pensions industry is hugely skewed to equities and risky assets. But really, when you're 66 years old, you should be doing the opposite. You should be protecting your life savings. Because imagine you retire at 66 and the market falls 50%. Your entire accumulated lifetime savings on your retirement date have just halved. Right. So your future expected lifestyle is halved in one go. Right. That is what the retirement crisis is. We're in a massive recession. The market bounced from the, acti the activities of the Federal Reserve and the government cash injections. Does the equity market continue to go up or not? I don't know. But if it goes down, we've got a huge problem. We can't pay the liabilities for all the pensions when we've given fixed liabilities like I promise to pay you two thirds of your final salary, which is a defined benefit. And the defined contribution pension system, which is how much have I put in, fluctuates wildly on when you retire and what assets you have. If you have it all in cash, it can't be taken away. It can be inflated away, but it can't be taken away Correct. By, by market losses. And market losses come quicker than inflation losses. Um, so. I've been warning people and warning people about the amounts of risk that they're taking because it is no inconsequential matter to halve, you know, the average recession in the stock market on average falls 50% to halve people's life savings on retirement. And this is the richest generation of people in all history. Correct. So what does that do to future spending? It goes down. It goes down massively. And I saw that when my father retired, you know, his, his expenditure, you know, he retired in 2000, the stock market hit him, and I saw his consumption go down a lot because of fear of running out of capital in future. 
So that is all part of the insolvency because those baby boomers, once they retire, tend to spend less because they're worried about how long will I live for? Do I have enough money? Right. So that makes the economy run slower over time, which is one of the reasons we keep seeing the economies run slow, why Europe runs slow and why Japan runs slow. It's all driven by demographics. Got it. So how do you see like the corporate debt bubble popping uh, with the insolvency phase? So, you know, one thing that we've seen is the Fed backstopping a lot of these companies and you know, they've been criticized for propping up zombie companies. So now how do you see this happening? They actually interjected faster than I thought they would in the corporate bond market. I mean, it was bloody fast when they started. So I'm not sure they're going to allow the corporate bond market to price default risk. Accurate. So let's go back to Europe and look at the European banks. What happened in the same situation? The equities went to zero. Right. So I'm watching the share price of GE, AT&T, Ford, General, Le uh, General Motors. Yeah, all of these indebted companies, usually triple B rated companies that would have got downgraded. They may still get downgraded, but the Fed will be there to support the junk bond market, which couldn't absorb the flow as these things got downgraded, but the equity will reflect it. Right. So one of the, you know, what I want to wrap up the interview is, now what are the best lessons in investing or in trading that you've learned from your decades of experience? One, the one that Paul Tudor Jones has told me, which was the best investors have an idea horizon that matches their investment time horizon. A lot of people trade two week trades built around, you know, a debt cycle. I mean, that's ridiculous. One's a right. 20, 30 year cycle. So you need to be cognizant of your time horizons. Um, I also think people tend to want to overtrade. One of the best positions is not trading because it gives you the optionality on the bigger option opportunity when it comes. People want to push narratives too much um, and you don't need to trade. Wait for the bigger opportunity. Or if you do, be small. Don't swing the bat. People tend to swing the bat because they think they're going to be right or they hope they're going to be right. And hope is not a trading strategy. Um, you know, and then I find that um, flow of funds analysis, sentiment analysis, um, position analysis, technical analysis, and then catalysts, you kind of weave those all in and they all put probabilities in your favor. And the, you know, the question is now for young people, is this the opportunity to get into finance? And my argument has been for a long time, no. It's, oh. a, shrinking <laughs> it's a shrinking industry. The right. definancialization of the world will continue. If you think there is a debt bubble and it's gonna get unwound, what that basically means is the financial sector is going to collapse in size. So there is a new financial system being built. So think about FinTech. Think about the crypto industry and the digital asset industry, or think about identifying the secular opportunity and betting your career on the secular opportunity. The rise of data is the new oil or whatever it may be. And then you can invest accordingly around it because there are opportunities to still make money and there always will be. So to wrap up, what are your top three tips for investors? 
Well, I think I covered most of them in that, right. in that, in that last <laughs> segment. Right. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Not at all. Really enjoyed it. Great questions. And I uh, hope it goes well. Thank you for listening to Market Champions. To never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe and we'll see you next time.